Hi everyone and welcome to Monday Morning 8am, a podcast that goes out every Monday morning at 8am from firmsconsulting.com. As always, we go out and look at the biggest stories and biggest trends and biggest issue facing the world and distill them into the insights for our readers and listeners. If you'd like to listen to the podcast version of this newsletter, go to any podcast app and type in strategy skills and you'll find this series under the Strategy Skills Podcast Program. If you'd like to see previous episodes with all the other insights we've ever put out, you can go to amazon.com and search for Strategy Insights. And if you'd like the newsletter version of future episodes, which won't contain previous insights, you can go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and put in your email address. You'll be automatically subscribed at no cost to the newsletter. As always, we cover important and major topics facing the world. And as we go through this, I want you to think carefully about how you're using the insights as a leader to make a difference in the world. Today, we're going to start out with the U.S. Endless Frontier Act and what I call the nine most terrifying words in the English language, according to President Ronald Reagan anyway. And those were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Now, whether or not you believe in that, and it's debatable because there are times when governments play a significant role. But let's talk about what it means that the United States government has made a decision to roll out a national industrial policy. It may not be the first one, but they've decided that the way to counter competition from around the world is to have a national industrial policy where a government is going to decide where to play, how to play, and allocate resources to compete in a competitive free market. Now, if that brought back some scary memories of uh, the Soviet Union in terms of allocating resources, well, it should because there are times when this can fail. Now, I spent a large part of my career as a partner in strategy advising governments around the world. And I would always tell governments, the role of a government is to do things the private sector cannot or will not do that the citizens need. Let's take an example of this, right? Semiconductors, big topic in the world today. Intel has struggled to keep pace with the ability to manufacture chips that are at the cutting edge, which, you know, that's a different way of saying smaller and smaller with more capabilities. So they're going to outsource a large chunk of that. Now, is the argument here that the government should intervene and encourage semiconductor companies to manufacture in the United States? Because if that's true, we've got to ask ourselves, why are semiconductor companies not manufacturing in the United States in the first place? There must be a reason for that. Because it's not as if America cannot get semiconductors. They can. They just have to have better procurement agreements. Remember, it's about the government should invest in things that the private sector cannot or will not do that the citizens need. But in the case of semiconductors, even if companies don't want to manufacture in the United States, they can still source it from outside. You just need better sourcing, better capabilities, and so on. Now, the areas this national industrial policy wants to look at are things like AI, machine learning, quantum computing, climate technologies, and so on. And the thing we have to remember here is that these are technologies we are choosing to invest in. But we don't know if these are the technologies that are going to be the things that decide the future of nations. An example of this is if we went back 20 years, there was a huge debate around hydrogen cells ethanol-powered vehicles, and electric-powered vehicles. Imagine if 
a government intervened and said, we believe based on everything we've heard in the scientific community that the future is hydrogen and we're going to cut off funding from electric vehicles because we want everyone to be focused in this one direction. Now, what would have happened there? So the question is, yes, we know about AI, we know about machine learning, we know about quantum computing and so on. But within those fields, there are many different ways to produce quantum computing capability. There's maybe at least three or four different ways, and they are different techniques. You have to make a bet on which is the right technique. So the question is not whether the government should set industrial policy. The question is, who in the government is going to set industrial policy? Who is that person, and how do they manage their biases? Who has access to those people to tell them where to invest? How do they get access? And if they have access to the wrong people, then their council is going to determine where they invest. Now, I'm going to give you two examples of sectors that have stormed back without any government intervention. I'll give you the first one. The first one is the electric car sector, or actually the entire automotive sector. For a long time, people had assumed the United States had barred out of the, of the automotive sector. It's not an insult to Ford and GM and so on, but it was believed that the most cutting-edge thinking in automotives was going to take place in Germany and Japan and the United States would be also RANS. The government did not intervene to create Tesla. That's American entrepreneurialism. That's the viciousness of VC-funded startups fighting it out to see who would have the best technology, and as a result of fighting, the strongest survived, and by and large won, at least as of now. Tesla is worth $600 billion, $700 billion, and that financial largest gives them the capability to invest in even more things. The Economist recently had an article, and I think it's a great article, which talks about how all of a sudden, after having been written off as also rands in the financial tech sector, the United States is back. Stripe and PayPal are now two dominant payment processes and expected to drive the digital revolution after, for many years, the United States was considered to be also rands. Now, here's an example where the state did not get involved and the sectors thrived. And you've got to ask yourself, how will the state get involved? Is it going to pick companies to invest in? Which means, does it have a model to know where to invest? Because if it does, it's just put all VCs out of business. Does it have a model to tell different cities how to build thriving tech clusters? Because if it has, why hasn't it shared it before and prevented so many cities in the United States from trying and failing to replicate Silicon Valley? Are we going to invest in universities? Does that mean that all these AI researchers who now work at Google and Apple, where they are doing outstanding work, are going to be encouraged to leave those posts and come into universities to produce original research which will be owned by the public, which eventually will have to be taken over and adapted by private sector companies anyway to make them commercially viable products? So the question is, why are we pursuing a national industrial strategy and how will it work? And if the mechanism cannot work, are we simply reacting to something because we're scared? And is a strategy based on fear the best way to proceed? Those are all important points that we need to think about. The next piece, a very interesting one, is called the China-US Geostrategic Redux. And as many of you know, China and the United States are in the news quite a lot, especially after what happened in Alaska, where the two countries got together and had what many call a war of words. Now, it's not my place to judge who was right or wrong. I'm sure both sides are highly intelligent. They're surrounded by very smart advisors and they have a strategy they're following. But I want to talk about 
where we are going. I was watching a TV show uh, last night about Hungary. And Hungary is a little country in um, Central, some call it Eastern Europe. I'm sure Hungarians call it Europe. And it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, one of the great empires of the world. Budapest, which is the capital of Hungary, used to be one of the great cities of the world. Fabulous place, the first underground subway system in Europe. Many, many world firsts. But in the blink of an eye, it disappeared. Now, why is this important? 200 years from now, the decisions we make today are not going to be written up in 500 pages like the way the New York Times and Wall Street Journal does it. Every day they have a piece about China and the United States. It's going to be summarized to two lines in whatever version of Wikipedia exists in 200 years. And the two lines are going to be something along the lines of, in 2001, the United States did X and China did Y, which led to Z. And I want us to think through the strategic implications of what's happening here. Whenever you buy a product today, when you lift it up, it usually says made in China. If China was a product and you'd lifted it up, it would say made in the United States. And there's a reason for that. It was US government policy that to take on the Soviet Russia, they had to break up the budding relationship between communist China and, and communist Russia. They had to divide and conquer. So the plan was that you know Nixon and uh, his advisors came up with a plan to set up a series of meetings with the Chinese and bring China into the United States camp. And China obviously looked at its options and said, you know what? I mean, the United States looks like it knows what it's doing, so let's go in that direction. And when China began opening up, China had no leverage. Remember, it's a, it was a poor country, struggling, suffering to feed its people. It had no leverage. So when it encouraged businesses to come in, it had nothing to offer them beyond the fact that, well, you can set this up and we'll provide cheap labor. Companies went in. They were not forced to. They went in. They put their know-how in. They, they, whether you call it technology transfer or not, they gave their technology to the Chinese in one form or another. If you build a factory in China, whether or not you're legally giving it to them, you're giving your technology to the Chinese because they're going to look at it. If you look at something long enough, you're going to figure out yourself how to do it. But beyond that, as China became wealthier and more powerful, they said, okay, you want to work in our country, so you've got to do things for us. You know, you've got to invest in technology, teach our people, do technology transfer, and so on. The point here is that we created this. We created our biggest competitor. And now we're in a position whereby we have to decide how we're going to manage this competitor. Because immediately after the meeting in Alaska, the Chinese and the Russian foreign ministers got together, which sends a signal that, well, things are not going so well with the West, so maybe we should get closer together, which is going back to the 1960s when the Chinese and the Russians are close together. Now, what are the insights here? There are many insights here. The first one is the law of unintended consequences. You make a strategic decision whether you're a country, a company, and a person. You've got to think five to seven chess moves ahead to understand how this decision is going to play out. If you're a company and you do anything, it's going to play out over the next 5, 20 years. If you're a person and you make a decision, it's going to play out over the rest of your life. If you're a country, it's definitely going to play out because it's a competitive world. But when we think about what's happening in the world of geostrategy and geopolitics, we have to understand our role in creating the challenges we face today. I personally believe capitalism is a good thing. Competition is good. It makes us rise up to the challenge. But we need to understand the role we created for ourselves in creating the situation we now face. And not too many people think about that. 
there are fundamental lessons here about you make a decision it looks good but how is this going to play out over the next few years the next piece the next piece is called tesla is not an electric car company and i'm sure when i say that many people will say what do you mean michael of course it's an electric car company i'll give you an example of this and explain to you why it's very important and how it explains why many electric car companies may not be able to challenge tesla let's look at starbucks right starbucks many of you would say is a coffee company or at least a coffee chain company a place you have coffee at and they serve tea as well i've never ordered the tea from um, starbucks uh, it's like going to a steakhouse and ordering fish but anyway tesla is a coffee company no one would disagree with that they're a chain of coffee restaurants or coffee cafes maybe is a better word why starbucks became successful is that they created an atmosphere a process an ambience a culture that made it okay for people to and i would say cool for people to work outside of their homes rather than work in an office i'll say that again they made it cool and accepting for people to work outside of their homes rather than work outside of their office and what that means is that tesla what that means is starbucks is actually the third place you live in you can work and do things at home or you can work and do things at the office or you can work and do things at starbucks so when you compete against starbucks there's two ways to do it one is you become the better the more preferred third choice for a person or and this is probably the right way to go is you find a way to show people that they should not be looking for a third place but they should come to my coffee shop because i'm offering something else they didn't think was possible that's finding a new dimension a new way to compete so why is this important about tesla well for one I have many executive coaching clients around the world and I have a few in the automotive sector particularly in Germany and Japan. And one of the common refrains I get from them is yeah Michael you know we talk about American uh, capability and strategy and technology and so on but let, let's just look at what the United States has done right? In terms of manufacturing the United States talks about a big game about how they need to move up the value chain in manufacturing but they have Boeing which has had more recalls and cancellations than an e-commerce store during Christmas. Then you've got Intel which has basically lost the race to manufacture high-end semiconductors. Then you have NASA which put a man on the moon in the 60s and now is basically renting time on Russian technology that nobody wants to rent by the way. I mean I've never heard any scientific uh, guru in the world or technological engineering a leader say that my god the next thing i want to do to you know galvanize and motivate my workforce and r&d department is take them on a tour of russian engineering capabilities deep in siberia no one ever said those words and the americans talk a big game but they don't know how to manufacture then along comes tesla and remember when you have a truly revolutionary idea the first thing people do is they ridicule you and i remember the early comments that uh, were made about tesla then they completely oppose you and say that you tried to destroy capitalism which many companies did when tesla decided to bypass auto dealerships and sell directly to the public now if tesla is not an electric car company what is tesla well think about it you can know what tesla is when you watch how the fans react to the launch of a new electric vehicle it's not just tesla it's the entire elon musk industrial complex which is spacex as well because when people see a spacex launch they attach it to tesla i mean i remember watching a live stream when spacex was able to do something unique i think it was bring back a rocket 
uh, that was able to land upright. And I remember the crowd in that control center, you know, chanting and screaming and cheering and clapping, you know, USA, USA, USA. I've seen people stand outside showrooms and wait for the latest Tesla to be delivered. I've seen people clapping. I've seen people take their kids, get into a plane, go to some place to wait for the rollout of a Tesla. Tesla is not an electric car company because Tesla is today the best example of American patriotism. It's an expression of American engineering and technological prowess. It's an emotional attachment. Think about when you go on a date, right? Imagine you go on five dates. You go on these five dates and the first date is amazing. This guy or lady tells you something that makes you feel so nice, so special. You feel like you're walking on air, right? So what happened here? An activity took place that generated a burst of positive emotion. Now, you go on your second date. An activity takes place that generates a burst of positive emotion. Third date, fourth date. By your fifth date, you're in love, right? Every time you think of this person, you get a burst of positive emotion. Every time people think of Tesla and Elon Musk in general, it's not about an electric car. It's the fact that, yes, he made the United States say we're no longer has-beens in engineering. We are back in the game. We, yes, maybe we need to borrow a Russian satellite for the next two years, but we're going to be back. Maybe we will have to listen to the Germans tell us we know nothing about how to make iron cars for the last 30 years, but we are now back. The company that wants to displace Tesla is not the company that makes the best electric car, but it's the company that's gonna make a large chunk of the population of the world, but especially the Americans, have that same emotional connection. When you're competing with Tesla and you want to displace Tesla in the United States, if you only make the best electric car vehicle, but you are unable to weld that emotional connection and make Americans feel that, wow, we're back in the game, guys. You know, Forget about Boeing and NASA, we've got Elon Musk, Tesla, and SpaceX. That's how you're gonna win. That's the deep insight. Uh, you know that we're advising an electric car startup in China backed by the Chinese government, and this is the piece of advice we give them. Maybe you cannot wean away Tesla fans, but you've gotta find your own fans, raving crazy fans, that have that deep emotional connection, and you gotta slowly expand that fan base. But until you understand that, you're not gonna beat Tesla. The next big story I want to talk about is this whole streaming struggle that's taking place around the world. And of course, I'm waiting to watch Zack Snyder's Justice League. It's still saved and I just can't wait for four hours freed up in my diary. But the next piece is called Disney Plus is not a streaming service. If you followed Monday Morning ATM, you know that I have a very senior client, executive coaching client, who I'm helping her think through some of the issues in the streaming world, uh, trying to take on a number of players. And we always speak, um, we always interact to understand what's happening in the world. And I listen to what she's doing and I coach her in terms of where she needs to, to rethink her assumptions and so on. And she went silent for quite a long time. And then she comes back and talks to me about how, you know, her team has analyzed Disney Plus as a streaming platform. And they have a fairly good understanding of the technology, the library, how they can create a better interface, a better experience how they're able to better source content. And the reason why this is important is because one of the, the big battles being fought in streaming is with children. Because what happens with children is that when they find a program, an episode, a movie, a character they like, they want to literally watch that thing 150 times, maybe a thousand times. I've 
heard the song Let It Go, which I actually like, by the way. I think it's a very good song. It's a very catchy song. But I've heard that song so many times before I watched the movie. I knew the words to most of that song before I watched the movie because every time I go somewhere, some kid is singing it or the words are splashed onto some Disney memorabilia and merchandise. So she was talking to me about how Disney is a streaming behemoth and what they did right. And I pointed out to her that if you compete with Disney Plus as a streaming company, you will lose because Disney is not a streaming company. And she said, Michael, how can you say that? Of course it's a streaming company. Everyone says it's a streaming company. You pick up any major publication in the world today, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, whatever it is, and they talk about Disney being a streaming service. She got upset with me. In fact, she made something along the comments that maybe you shouldn't be my advisor and mentor if you don't know this. And I said, look, you've got to think about this. Disney, you've got to think very smartly about this. Why do people, why is Disney Plus doing so well? There are many reasons, but there's a, there's a foundational anchor reason. Disney Plus is not a streaming service because Disney Plus is basically like Uber. It's a, it's a transportation service. And that made her even more upset because now she's, before she thought maybe she didn't understand, but now she's pretty certain I have no idea what I'm talking about. And maybe I had whiskey in the morning before I spoke to her. And I unpacked this for her and I said, okay, you got to think about this, right? Disney Plus is anchored in its children's content. Yes, Marvel is big. Yes, National Geographic is great. I like the National Geographic programs, but they're fighting it out on, on the children's side of things. And they're getting the frothy upside on the Marvel and uh, Star Wars side of things. But that anchor that's driving this juggernaut, that's the children's content. What Disney is doing is it's found a way to take a child's best friend and put them into their house on a daily basis. Think about that for a second. They found a way to make a child's best friend visit them every day on the terms they want. Disney Plus is an Uber that puts all these nice characters in that f- the children think are their best friends and gets them to the child. A Disney character is usually a child's first, only, or best friend. They love that character. I, when I was a child, I remember I would wait every Sunday to watch the Disney Hour for free. It was usually on a pay channel. And I loved that show. Well, just shows. There's four of them, 30-minute episodes over two hours. And speaking to people from around the world, I know Disney had this running in many countries. So Disney Plus is an Uber for Goofy, Disney, Minnie, Mickey, and I'm sure there's many other characters that I don't know. And a child gets to turn it on and spend time with their best friend. If you want to beat Disney Plus, you've got to understand those two dynamics. Are you telling me you're going to beat them by taking on their their core, their anchor, which is their children's content? Are you telling me that you're going to create a new friend for a child and find a way to deliver that best friend to your child every day when the child wants to watch and spend time with that best friend? Because that's a big thing, right? And that's insight here. Because they're competing on technology and libraries, but they don't understand the fundamental reason why Disney Plus is doing so well. It's not a streaming service. It's basically like a club whereby a child can find its first best friend. It's like a dating service for kids. But, you know, a nice dating service where you find only good people. The same way Tesla is not an electric car company. Today, it embodies American fighting spirit. Yes, we can, right? And when, you, when you're chanting USA, USA, the last time we did that, I can tell you it's not when we were renting space on a Russian rocket. Finally, what I want to talk about is the largest wealth management trend for the next few decades. And I put that with a question mark at the end because I think it is still 
debatable, because I haven't done the numbers, but I think it is true. So let's talk about this, right? So um, I have a, an executive coaching client who is a, um, he's a lawyer at a corporate securities law firm. It's not a major one. It's one of the mid-tier ones. When I say mid-tier, I pick my words carefully here. Not mid-tier in terms of the clients that they get and their billings. They bill at the highest rate, you know, magic circle level and Wall Street type of rates. But in terms of size, they're much smaller. And we've been talking about how this firm should grow in the future. And they're largely exposed to the Asia-Pacific region. And one of the things I always teach people is that we don't teach insights. We teach processes to develop insights. And he was talking to me about how his firm is going to raise debt and they're going to expand heavily into China and so on to pursue what they think is going to be a boom in corporate securities, restructurings, mergers, Western companies entering the market and so on. And, you know, he's convinced that this trend is real. And I agree with him. You know, the corporate activity that's going to take place in Asia Pacific is going to be unprecedented. It's like something we've never seen before. But I asked him, you know, if you're doing this, and every other major law firm is going to do this. How are you going to stand out? Because what makes you different? It's one thing to identify a trend, but how are you going to benefit from this? Or are you telling me you don't really worry too much about how you benefit? You're just going to, it's okay if you get 1% share of all deal transactions. And this is how the discussion went. You know, it's about thinking what is happening. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you a technique I worked with, I used with him to understand how you develop insights and how you develop a strategy. The first thing you have to look at is a trend, right? And the way a trend works is that uh, there are many trends in the world. The rise of Asia Pacific is one of the, is going to be the biggest trend in the next few decades. Nothing will beat that. Then you got to ask yourself, who is going to be affected by that trend? Specifically break them out into segments, businessmen, men, women, children, you can break it into corporate segments. It's up to you how you want to segment it. I like to segment things by consumer groups because then we can look at how this consumer group is going to be affected and then how industries can serve them. Then you ask yourself, okay, once you know the different consumer segments that are going to be affected, how is their behavior going to be modified? So first you identify the trend, the segments that are being affected, and then their behavior modification, which is as this trend, which is the rise in wealth of Asia Pacific, marches on in an unstoppable fashion, how do people's behavior change? And then the fourth step is, as their behavior is modified, as their behavior changes, whom do they seek counsel? Who do they go to for help? A behavior modification is also another way of saying people experience problems and who do they go to for help? They are going to someone, whether it's a company, whether it's a product, whether it's a service, right? Now, he was convinced that pursuing the corporate market was the best way to do this. Because they are what is known as a corporate security firm. They deal in asset management, M&A, and so on. And I explained to him, okay, let's look at the numbers here, right? As countries become wealthier, there are certain things that happen. Everything you said is true, but I think you, if you look at it, um, if you segment things by companies, then yes, what you say is true. But if you segment things by consumer segments, I think you're missing at one of the biggest trends in the world. As countries become wealthier, divorce rates go up. And, and it's true. I mean, the Nikkei Asia did a piece this week about how divorce rates are skyrocketing in China, which is completely normal. And as other Asian Pacific nations get onto that um, wealth wheel and, and get wealthier, their divorce rates will go up. And he said, OK, yeah, that's interesting, but we're not a divorce firm. And I said, OK, just hold on a second. You said you under, you're in corporate securities and asset management. 
when I asked him, you know, what is the most, what is the oldest and most effective mechanism of wealth transfer in the world? And he's giving me all these kind of things about government policies and redistribution and food stamps. And I said, yes, that's all true. But actually, the biggest form of wealth distribution is marriage. During marriage, wealth distribution occurs in one of two ways. One, if the husband or wife spends money on another person, that's wealth distribution or redistribution. And of course, if assets are transferred onto another person's name, if a house is put onto two people's names and during a divorce, there's wealth redistribution. So if you're telling me you're in asset management, then why are you not in divorces? Because that's the biggest mechanism of wealth redistribution in the world. And he said, well, I never thought about that. And I said, yes. You, need to re you always need to ask the questions other people are not asking. And they said, but Michael, how would I do this? You know, and I said, you've you got to think about it carefully. As China becomes wealthier, divorce rates are going to go up. And obviously, you are not serving lower income people. You want to serve very wealthy, high net worth individuals. And those people treat divorces like a business. And he said, OK, that's interesting. So I want to create a... Um, but I can't call it a divorce practice. It's never going to work. And I said, look, don't call it a divorce practice. Call it a family office practice. If you call it a family business, people think you're only advising business, families that own businesses. If you call it a family office, you signal that you're treating family wealth as a business. right? And then we had a lot of discussions about it, and he liked the idea. And he said, but how do I do this? You know, How do I sell? I can't sell. I don't even want to sell it. And I said, look, you have a moral duty to do this. If you firmly believe that you have the best solution to the problem, and if nobody has access to your thinking, they are going to suffer. Families are going to make bad decisions on wealth management. They're going to cause tremendous acrimony, cause wealth to be squandered. Then you have a moral duty to find clients, teach them how to do this, and save them before some other lawyer signs them up only to get money. That's moral duty. If you have the best service in the world, you're doing a disservice to clients if you don't do everything in your power to find them and serve them. And in another episode of Monday Morning ATM, I'll tell you the region story of why I think that. And he said, wow, Michael, I never thought about it. I said, you've got to think about this. Moral duty. Always think about moral duty. If a pharmaceutical company develops a drug that could save millions of lives, would we attack them for running the world's largest advertising campaign? No. We would celebrate them and honor them for doing it. Yes, they make money, but that's the way the world works. It's their moral duty to do everything in their power, advertising, marketing, to find as many people to sign up and save their lives. Now, if you have the best service, and I know you, I know the kind of guy you are, I know your team. In fact, I know several of your team because I worked with them before, the coaching clients. You are one of the best. You have a moral duty to do it. And he said, okay, Michael, but how do I do it? How do I find these people? And I said, okay, you got to think about this. Remember the, the pattern. Trend, consumer segments that are affected. How is their behavior modified? And whom do they seek counsel to? And I have a question to you. When high net worth individuals in Asia Pacific are getting divorced, who do they go to for help first? Who's the first person they call? And he said, well, their lawyer. And I said, no, they don't call their lawyer. The first person they're going to call is their financial advisor. They're going to ask their financial advisor, I'm thinking about this. What do you think I should do? Who should I speak to? Now, this is what you're going to have to do. The countries that you're going to target, whether it's China and another country, I'm not going to mention the country. You should create a program where you're going to be educating wealth managers and financial managers in that country about the coming 
divorce boom and what it means for them. So what you're going to do is you're going to create a series of workshops. You're going to create a series of seminars. You're going to reach out to these big companies and say, hey, we know this is coming. We want to do this for you. It's going to cost us nothing. It's going to cost you nothing. Give us two days of your time or three days. We're going to run a series of workshops. And we're going to educate you about what is coming, how to think about it, and how to manage it. And the reason I told him to call it family office and not divorce, because it's not just about the divorce. When a divorce takes place, many things are going to be restructured beyond the divorce. Trusts are going to have to be restructured. Homes are going to be moving into LLCs and out of LLCs. There's a lot of business you can do during divorces for high net worth individuals if you remember this important point. And that's a deep insight. There's many insights here. Think of that process I used to extract value from a trend. Think about the way I rethink what a divorce is, the way I rethought what Tesla is, the way I rethought what Disney Plus is. Because the theme of wealth management is such a major topic in the world, and I have a little gift coming in for Firms Consulting Slides members in a few weeks, we're going to be releasing, well, maybe a few months, I'm not exactly sure of the time, but it's going to be coming, right? We're going to be releasing the analysis for how you go about thinking out opportunities in wealth management as the world shifts. We're going to do one for Asia Pacific, one for Europe, and one for North America, and maybe even one for Africa. Now, the response from this client is, Michael, you know, why didn't you tell me about these things earlier? Why is it only when I speak to you and I make time to speak to you telling me about these things, right? Because imagine if you had told me this three months ago, I could have done so much with it. But yeah, the question is, why wasn't he talking to me three months ago? And this is the thing I hear from many, many clients. You know, why didn't you tell me this? Why is it I had to find you and get this from you? You need to find a way to get these things to us. So one of these things we are thinking about is creating a program whereby some of our closest clients work with us over the course of a year of regular interactions whereby we help them think about how the big issues in the world are going to impact them. Because many of our clients, they want to learn tools and techniques to do a better analysis and so on. But we have many senior, ambitious, and not necessarily senior, but they're also ambitious clients who want to know, tell me what's happening in the world. Teach me to think about the way you think about things and show me how to use the trends that are shaping the world to benefit me, my business, my family. And that's something we're thinking about because a lot of clients have come forward and asked for this. So I'm quite keen to see how things can play out. As you go through the world and look at opportunities, there are trends everywhere. You can use this process. And as you find a customer segment, think about how do you serve that segment better? The final piece of advice I gave this client is lawyers doing an M&A deal, they typically charge a flat fee, but some of them also charge a percentage of the deal. When you are restructuring and doing work for family offices, and a family office is what we call divorce for this firm, think about restructuring your fee structure not to charge billable hours, but a percentage of the assets you're going to be managing and restructuring. This is something they're still working on, but it's one of the biggest pieces of advice I gave them. Because this way, it's not about billable hours, it's about the value you bring. And you should do that. Other lawyers are not doing it, but it is the way the world is going to go. So there's a lot of things we covered today, but I think it's going to really make you think about the way the world is working. And again, always remember, what is your moral duty? If you have the best solution, 
If you know you can change lives, if you know you can leave the world better than it was before, you have a moral duty to find people and make them work with you and listen to you. And as I said, in the next episode of Monday morning, 8 a.m., I'll talk you through how I developed the concept of moral duty and why it's so important. As always, I will be back in your inbox, podcast, or the book next week, Monday morning at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.